like literally I was on the story of a six foot apartment building at one point and like ready to jump. Um, and, uh, I just thought something in my head said, you know, you're not done yet. I didn't really know what that was uh, at the time. Uh, now I do believe that it was God. It was divine intervention. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a very rough period. And, um, Ultimately, I ended up falling in love with the hotel industry instead of I'd worked on some political campaigns on both sides of the aisle and realized, number one, I didn't have thick enough skin. Number two, I didn't have the patience to deal with some of these knuckleheads who are running for political office. And these were, again, these were going to be my peers and coworkers. You know, I just didn't want to didn't want to do that. But I was falling in love with the, the business community, the entrepreneurial lifestyle and, and the hotel industry. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of American Stippets. My name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my co-host, Barbara Allen, and we have another awesome show for you. Uh, look, we have all had to make really significant adjustments in our lives over the past year to 18 months. And whether you've been directly impacted from the COVID virus or not, you definitely have had to adjust your routine uh, and even maybe your business to meet the mandated lockdowns and business closures that we've all experienced. And when most of America was actually busy hoarding toilet paper, uh, people like Larry Broughton were laser focused on keeping their businesses alive. Uh, Larry's industry was among one of the hardest hit and he had to make extremely difficult decisions to prevent the total destruction of the hotel empire he worked decades to build. Larry took the leadership lessons that he learned during his time in the special forces and applied them to lead himself first out of personal adversity and then into professional success. He honed those skills through the 2001.com crash and then again in the 2008 market collapse. And he may have hoped another crash would have not happened, uh, but he never stopped sharpening his skills to be ready for one. And in this episode, Larry shares his story of how he how he decided on the special forces, leadership lessons he's learned, and the void he fell into upon leaving the military. He opens up about what COVID has done to the hospitality industry and the very hard lessons and decisions he made uh, to ensure his business would not be a victim of the time. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Larry Broughton. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. We are happy to be here with you tonight. I get to sit down and share with you somebody that we stumbled across a year and change ago, and I have such massive respect for. Larry Broughton is a veteran of our United States military. I'm going to let him tell you about his branch of service and what he did in there. He came out of the military, went through his own series of struggles, which a lot of people would just use as an excuse to give up on. But Larry just dug deep, doubled down, built himself massive success, crashed and burned in the 2008 <laughs> collapse, <laughs> built his way back up. And here he is again, navigating another unforeseen, insane crash of epic proportions and still managing to dig deep and lead people through it. We have so much fun and so much value to bring you tonight. Larry, I'm so happy to have a chance to, to sit back down with you again. Thank you for Thanks. joining us. 
Barb, thank you so much. You and Dave are like my favorite people uh, out there who are doing this stuff. No, you're bringing messages to the world that we need to hear. You know, so thanks for having me on here. Let's have some fun. Yeah, let's do it, man. So let's get into again. I was telling you before we before we went live tonight. We interviewed Larry back uh, way back in like episode eighty three on American Snippets. And Larry, your story then was like one of underdog to success to underdog to success, and it is so <laughs> almost like it is like Groundhog Day. I don't know, foreshadowing, foreshadowing, because like here we are again. But let's start with that background. How you, okay. what led you into military service and what branch you went into? Let's start with that. Yeah, interesting story, I guess. Um, my father was a Marine. Um, he served uh, during World War II with on Iwo Jima. Um, and so he was a patriotic guy. He never tried to force us into the military. In fact, he, he intentionally tried to dissuade me from, from going in. Um, I was not a great student in high school. In fact, I barely graduated from high school. It turns out I'm dyslexic. Um, didn't know that until later on uh, in life. But I was big time into martial arts. And uh, I'd heard a rumor. I came to a national martial arts tournament in California. I grew up in rural New York and heard a rumor that the Army was going to be sponsoring the first Taekwondo team for the, as a demonstration sport. I think it was the 1984 Olympics. And so I thought, there's my ticket out of very rural New York. Um, the interesting thing is, Barb, and this will tell you how my brain works, um, I wasn't even studying Taekwondo. And I, was, I thought, I'm going to get on the Army Taekwondo team. I was in a, studying a style that was very similar to Taekwondo, but I just thought, why not? Why not me, right? If they can do it, why can't I do it? So I went down to the Army recruiter's office um, and uh, told him, this is my dream. I want to be on the Army Taekwondo team. And he just shook his head, put his hand up and said, young man, if you want to be on the Army Taekwondo team, you got to be in the Army. <laughs> it just it never registered. <laughs> There's you know, one I, small I, detail you're leaving yeah, out. Larry. Details, details. <laughs> I laugh every time I think about that because it is just so indicative to the way I think, you know. Um, I just jumped to the conclusion and um, I just thought they sponsored sponsored it. Anyway, so he convinced me to take the ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. And um, and I always did really poorly on, on tests because I you know had a hard time reading. And in fact, when I would take the SATs, you know, anything that we fill in the bubble kind mm -hmm. of thing, I would make designs in the Scantron forms. Because I felt like I've, I've got a better chance of scoring higher by just making designs and actually reading the question and answering it. That's that's the that's the low self-esteem I had about myself academically, right? Um, so anyway, so I went to take the ASVAB, and it's a different type of test that I've ever taken uh, in my life. It's a battery, right? And they're checking your aptitude. Well, it turned out I scored really high. And um, when I went in to review the results with the recruiter, he said, man... You scored in the top one-tenth of one percentile in the country. You could pick your job in the military, in the Army. You can't be an officer unless you're willing to go to college. And I said, no, that's not my bag at this point. But he said, you could even try out for special forces. And it's the way he said it is like a challenge. 
mm-hmm. to me. And I didn't even know what special forces was. And so he had to explain it to me and, you know, the Green Berets. And so anyway, so I said, yeah, that sounds awesome. Sign me up for that. And he, he said, listen, I'm, we're going to write you a contract for this. But if you fail any of the courses along the way, or if you don't even make it through, you know, you're you're going to go wherever the Army needs you. So if they need a cook in Alaska or they need a truck driver in Louisiana, that's what you're going to do. And to, nothing wrong with those gigs. That's not what I wanted to do. Right. right. And so I said, yeah, let's do this thing. Um, well, it turns out um, I went through and did really well in all the training I did and ended up getting assigned to 10th Special Forces Group. And um, that's how I kind of did it. So I spent about uh, nine and a half years in, in the Army. Um, and uh, about eight of those years were on Special Forces A teams. And so this was in the 80s and early 90s. I got out um, in 92 after Desert Storm. So no, cool. I love when you say A teams, I can't even, I know that's like a real thing, but I'm such a schmo <laughs> that my head flashes back. Do you remember that show? With, <laughs> yeah. With Mr. T, yeah. Mr. T, oh my God, my mom used to love that that show. Yeah, we used to love that show with Murdoch and BA. It was was just like that. Exactly. Just like that. The plan is there is no plan. So that seems actually pretty appropriate. So, uh, yes, I'm just going to diminish your entire career. It's a breakdown (laughs) from that show, Larry, because that's how I. That's how how we roll. Yeah, that's that's how I roll here. All right. So you're out of the military now. And I'm sure a lot of people that watch this show are connected to service in somehow. uh, And they either have experience with themselves or they know somebody who's gone through that. You have that transition period where you're coming out of service and you're in a completely different culture. You're in a different headspace than everybody around you. Like everything you've done seems sort of irrelevant in this other world and all these, all these things swirling through your head. How, how was that for you? Did you just jump right back in with no problem or did you struggle? No, let me lay the groundwork. So I was on a couple of different deployments um, and remember thinking, damn, if these knuckleheads can run a country, how hard can it be? That's always been my mantra in life. How hard can it be? If they can do it, I can do it. And so I thought I started getting very interested in the political process, in um, foreign policy. And so I decided I was going to get out and study political science, maybe run for political office, maybe work for the State Department. I didn't really know. And so um, I had a friend that I had grown up with who had moved to San Francisco. And I'd heard that the college, the value of a college education in California back then who is ranked among the best in, in the country. It's not so much anymore. It's very expensive, you know, and it's just, anyway, there are better alternatives, uh, I think. Um, so I started going to school as, um, for to study political science. My first job out of the military was as a, as a night auditor at a little, literally no-tell motel in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. So a lot like of things. pay by the hour kind of thing? Yes, exactly, pay by the hour. Yeah kind of thing. Yeah. My job was to keep the peace among the drug dealers and the pimps and the prostitutes who happened to be my coworkers um, at the time. Seriously. Well, it's not boring. And, no, it was not boring. But okay. think about this. I just spent all these years in the military and I moved to San Francisco. Nobody wanted to hear about some old, not old, but some veteran, right? Mm-hmm. So I was out of my element there. Um, I'm working in a place where it was not a great environment. Um, I was going to a junior college uh, at the time. 
nothing against that. It would just end up being a great education. We went to College of San Mateo um, uh, at the time, just you know, just getting my undergrad stuff taken care of, taking a couple of political science classes. But I went from being on A teams where you have Type A hard charging people who pursue excellence in everything that they do to people who are just phoning in their performance everywhere around me were low mediocre performers just phoning in their performance good was good enough and it sucked my lifeblood yeah i hated it i mean i more than once thought what the hell are you doing with with, with your life you know and i considered going back in um, and then I, you know, wrestle with, I can make a bigger impact on the world doing this than that. It was a very rough transition. I mean, like very hard. Like I was ready to jump off a building one night, literally that, that it was that rough at times. Yeah. Um, and how, and thank how, goodness old you, didn't. how old were you then? I was in my mid twenties, I guess. Still in your 20s. So you're still in your yeah. mid twenties and you're going through that. That's like a, that's a crazy time for anyone in your mid twenties, still trying to figure everything out. And well, yeah, exactly. But you know, um, I think any branch of, of service, any, you know, you're 17, 18, 19, 20, and you spend time in the military, you've done more growing than people that are in their thirties who just went from high school to college to, to go out in the world because you really learn the importance of teams and sacrifice and, and mission and all those kinds of things. Right. And then you layer in, you know, the job that I was doing in in the special operations community. Um, There's just a higher level of expectation as far as your performance goes. Right. And I expected more from the people around me. I thought it was normal that when you are working on a team, you're working with each other, that everyone's given 110%. And they're and they're sub- willing to subordinate their own agenda for the success of the mission or the team or the work project, right? That sounds just like how it is. That sounds exactly, exactly like it was a rude awakening. I can <laughs> tell you that. And I know I see it all the time, Barb. With you know, I work with a lot of uh, veteran entrepreneurs, and I see some of these folks transitioning where they get so frustrated with the civilian class. Well, guess what? You're now a civilian, so you got to lighten up because. Um, you, you got to find, I, I believe we have to find, we have to surround ourselves with people who are pursuing greatness as well. One of the things I've learned in the past year, if you don't mind me just sharing this, uh, I share it with my team at the hotel company all the time now, is that we need to offer grace, patience, and forgiveness freely and often. I wish I would have had that mantra in my head when I had first trans- transitioned out, offer grace, patience, and forgiveness freely and often. It would have lowered my blood pressure. I would have, you know, been less frustrated with people. That doesn't mean I I don't pursue excellence, but the rest of those folks, they're not me. I can't expect people to be, to show up like I show up. I just can't, it's not realistic. So I had to manage my own expectations, right? So it was a very difficult transition at times. Thank goodness I made it through, though. There were times where I didn't think I was going to make it through. Um, there, there were times where I thought it would be easier just to end it, you know. What um, pulled you back from those times? Uh, probably divine, some kind of divine intervention. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I really didn't. But, like, literally, I was on the story of a six-foot apartment building at one point and, like, ready to jump. Um, and uh, I just thought, 
something in my head said, you know, you're not done yet. I didn't really know what that was uh, at the time. Uh, now I do believe that it was God. It was divine intervention. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was it was a very rough period. And um, ultimately, I ended up falling in love with the hotel industry instead of I'd worked on some political campaigns on both sides of the aisle and realized, number one, I didn't have thick enough skin. Number two, I didn't have the patience to deal with some of these knuckleheads who are running for political office. And these were, again, these were going to be my peers and coworkers. You know, I just didn't want to didn't want to do that. But I was falling in love with the, the business community, the entrepreneurial lifestyle and, and the hotel industry. And so uh, ultimately, to make a long story short, I ended up becoming a partner in a hotel company there in San Francisco. And we grew that that little no-tell motel that I started at. Yeah. It converted into a boutique hotel. And we ended up picking up about 14 hotels in a 14-year period. And um, I had become a partner uh, in the company. And uh, so that kind of launched me into the what I do now as far as uh, being a hotel operator. So you make it all the way up there. You ride through, talk about, talk about 2008 first, that time period, what happened then? Well, maybe I should even before that, 2001. I, so I left my hotel company in San Francisco in um, uh, late 1999 and moved. I'd gotten married at the time and decided, decided I was going to launch my own hotel company in January of 2001. Think about 2001, what happened? Dot-com bomb, national recession, global recession, SARS, the avian flu. <laughs> I forgot you remember about that? SARS. Right. Yeah. And then 9-11. Right. All right. So I launched a hotel company during what was then the worst economic time since World War II. It was rough. Okay. So all that happened in 2001. Right. And so... Timing was off on that. So um, that was very difficult. And at that point in 2001, um, I started having, I started, this is when my, um, and I, it, was, it, was a, it was a rough time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we got through that. I started. Fast I started, forward. I, well, yeah. So um, if I did make it through there, there. Yeah. Um, I'll, just, I'll be really transparent. Jan uh, December of 2001 um, um, got was very rough, right? Um, it's right after it was after 9/11. Um, I was building a hotel in Santa Barbara. I had just renovated a hotel in um, out in Palm Springs, and um, I had taken out credit cards to grow the company. I was putting stuff on credit cards because you know the, the industry had crashed. Right. Yeah. And I was still trying to grow the company. I wasn't telling my wife about some of the financial decisions that I was I was making. That's always a good doing, idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> doing some just really nefarious, yeah. self-destructive things yeah. at the time because I, I didn't I didn't surround myself with people like accountability partners and um, mentors or masterminds. It was I was doing, you know, just lame stuff. And um and so my wife took my six or a few month old baby and said, when you get your shit together, call me. Right. And, um, and that was the time when I literally pulled out my life insurance policies and said, I'm worth more dead than alive at this point. 
And then that's when I really started having a, a spiritual awakening, yeah. right? Um, and I won't bore you with all those details, but we did end up having uh, a really quick recovery. I started calling people. I got the guts finally to start calling people and saying, hey, I'm way in over my head. My best efforts got me here and I'm, I'm dying, basically. Um, how can you help? Um, and so people put some connections together. I got a few hotel contracts. And in that year, we just turned things around. And then we looked like rock stars in the hotel industry. And so people started saying, hey, he's a great turnaround artist. Let's hire him. And so we grew pretty large. And then 2008 hit, like you were saying, which was another re recession, right? right? I and um, I skipped over a whole. Did. Well, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, there's been it's, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah. So it was 2008 that downturn when um, we were. I just felt like I'd gotten my legs back under me. You know, uh, was making some real money, and uh, but then when things tanked uh, again during the two during the 2008 downturn, um, my marriage was really dissolving at that point. Um, and that was a very difficult time because we did end up finally just splitting and saying, this is not going to work. Um, it broke my heart, of course, broke her heart, of course. Um, so that was a very, very difficult time because now I've got two kids in the mix of this. Yeah. But it's finally that wake up call, Barb, where um, I did have some people in my life at, at, at that point who were like, you're better than this. Let's get you through this. And so I took those first six months when I got separated, I went into my executive team at the hotel company and said, hey, I'm going to be basically, I'm going to be a part-time CEO for the next six months. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. I'll be around, but I'm spending 40 hours a week on me getting healthy. And so for six months, 40 hours a week, I did counseling, therapy, meeting with my pastor. Um going to accountability groups, 12-step programs, whatever it was, reading, journaling, writing. Mm -hmm. And then for the six months after that, I did it for 20 hours a week. So I got a PhD in me during that, during that year. And then we, you know, grew through all of that. What did, um, you know, let some, me, some let me ask that. you then, did yeah. you have anybody yeah. in your life? Cause that's such a, such a gigantic thing to do and a big move to make and a really hard decision to come by. It takes a lot to get to that place where you're willing to just say, you know what? I don't care what anybody has to say about it. I don't care what I have to give up or move or switch around. The time has come for me to just focus on myself. Did you have anybody push back against that? Did you have anyone yeah. like clients? Yeah. Clients. I had friends, um, a pastor, um, I found out who real friends were and who was not. I mean, anybody who's been through a, through a divorce, you, you learn this or even through any kind of tragedy, you learn who your real friends, who your real friends are, you know? Um, yeah. so I had plenty of people pushing back, uh, on it. Um, so let me ask you then, what would be your words or advice or anything? if somebody is sitting here listening to you and thinking, man, they'd love to do something similar, maybe not that drastic, maybe not six months yeah. or whatever it is, but if yeah. they need to take an hour a day or two hours a day and they're getting that pushback from people, do you have any words for someone who's like, Larry, how do I, I can't do this. I got kids. I got a spouse. I got a boss. I got neighbors who need me. And 
you don't understand. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Do you have words listen, for them? You, you listen to you. Yeah. Listen to you. You know, you know what's right. But, you know, in the Army, they say do the hard right over the easy wrong. What I say is courage changes everything. It takes guts to tell family members, to tell other people you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, to say you're wrong. This is what I feel like I need I need to do. Um, it might require less sleep. Like if you've got a full-time job and you're taking care of kids and you're used to getting six hours of sleep, well, you're going to get five hours. Right. You know, because as I said earlier, your best efforts got you there. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. You have to change something up. You have to dig deep. As Bedros Koulian said, you got to man up yeah. and do it, right? Yeah. And um, and that's not a sexist thing. You know, you, you get the idea of manning up, right? You I got to dig deep. Yeah. You, you got you to dig deep uh, sometimes. You know, the Stoics talk about sacrifice, that meaning in life comes from sacrifice, you know? Um, and so we've got to sacrifice some things. You're right. What I did was abs- I've never heard of anybody doing what I did. You know, yeah. thank goodness I was blessed that I was at, uh, on my own company. I'm an entrepreneur. I could find the time to do it. Um, I had people on my team who were willing to, to, to help out. Thank goodness. Would I have still done it? Maybe, you know, but I need, I'm one of those people, if I, when I commit to something, I want results. Well, I want now, you know, um, but thank goodness um, I was able to transform in many, I, I'm still Larry, you know, but right. the way I approach life is a lot different. I, I used to be, Barb, I was one of those guys that like you had to earn my respect. I was very distrusting of people. I always felt like someone was going to try to get over on me. And I realized is that that is a hard way to live. So now I let, I trust people now until I'm given a reason not to trust them. Right. Right. I look, I look for goodness now where I just used to always look for negative stuff. But the truth is you find what you're looking for. So if I'm looking for my team members to screw up or I'm looking for a spouse to cheat or if I'm looking for whatever it is, that's what I'm going to find. But I'm, if I'm looking for the miracles in life, if I'm looking for my team members to do something good, that's what I'm going to find, right? Yeah. And um, I'm glad I learned that uh, during that year. Yeah. So. No kidding. Th- th- some big lessons in there. So now here we are. <laughs> here we are, Larry. <laughs> after, <laughs> after a year that I dare yeah. say no one really saw coming, no, and no. you're industry is the hotel it's your primary industry you have these you own hotels your managers and some partners and some and everything is shut down you're in california right so everything was you were not one of those states that stayed open you locked locked directly down when did when did that lockdown hit you I don't remember the exact date but it was right from the start you know so we have hotels here in california and in chicago Oh. So it's just as bad, yeah. right? Um, yeah, so a lockdown happened right away. And uh, for those business owners that are out there, you probably know this, that the average business has 28 or 29 days of cash flow on hand. That's not um, enough. Not enough not for this year. Yeah. Not enough. And so what I, I did recall really quickly what happened in 2008. And so I made some tough choices. I, I immediately... 
I hated doing this, but I did it. I furloughed. We had, I think at the time, 700 team members in the company. And furloughing or laying hundreds and hundreds of people off, I think um, at one point it was 60% of the entire workforce. That's heartbreaking. I I mean, I cried over this, you know, because you know you're impacting people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I pretty regularly do this count of, I call it my sphere of influence, where I go through and I count all the people that I, I touched in my life, my family members, my team members, their family members, my vendors, right? Clients, all those kind of things. And um, and so I was really, I, it was crystal clear to me how many people I was going to be impacting by making this decision, right? right. Um, but I knew that if I didn't make these these difficult decisions, there was not going to be a company to come back to. Right. Um, and then they'd be furloughed or they'd be out of work anyway. Anyway, exactly. Right. Um so my gut told me that this was going to go on longer than the three months that they were talking about. It just been around enough to know. Mm-hmm. And so I um, I just started making plans that uh, we're going to have to pivot. Somehow we're going to have to transform the company on how we do business. We're going to have to make sure that my other businesses uh, are, are operating. And so it's been a struggle. Um, one of the things that we implemented right away, though, um, like I'm, a, I'm big about nowadays, you know, since I did my little, got my PhD in me, is uh, being grateful. Like I've got a gratitude journal. And every night before I go to bed, you know, I'm, you know, I, you know, thank God for all the things that I'm grateful for. It gets me in the right headspace to, yeah. to go to before I sleep. Um, and so when I realized that, gratitude and anxiety can't live in the same space at the same time, right? And if you remember back a year ago, everyone was anxious. I mean, I'm still anxious today, right? But everyone was really on edge because like a lot of our team members, our young professionals that were in in the company, this was their first management job. They weren't around. They weren't in the workforce in 2008. This is their first downturn, right? And so there were people that were in management positions in our company who are panicked, like, what? The, the phones aren't even ringing. There's not even a booking coming in. Or we've got to close our hotel. How do we do that? And so um, I found that I ended up becoming more of a, a mentor and coach, even more than normal with a lot of our team members. And so what we started doing is we do a morning stand-up, which we always do anyway. But before anybody participated in the morning stand-up, like sharing it, so morning stand-up in our, in our industry is, we have a very quick meeting and you say, here's what I accomplished yesterday and here's what I'm working on today. Next. Okay. okay. And we just go around the room really quickly. Well, now what we added in is you have, you can't say anything until you say, you give me the list of what you're grateful for. And so every person was sharing what they are grateful for, you know, and so that we started creating this culture of gratitude, right? Okay. And we did this across the country, uh, com- company. And now, um, People are doing this with e- with each other, you know, um, and it is lowering the anxiety. You know, you can just see it on people's face when they say, I'm grateful for this and they get specific mm-hmm. about it. Right. Um, and so I just I, I think that that's a that's one of the good lessons I've learned. And I'm sure that when we're through this again and we're back in the office full time, we'll continue doing this uh, gratitude uh, thing uh, each before each meeting. Awesome. It's really powerful. It helps. Yeah. So what was the 
impact on your overall company? How it, how does it look different today than it did a week before? Yeah, so sold two hotels. Um, where our clients have sold two, two of the hotels. We're still running uh, probably on average amongst all the hotels. We're probably running 55% less revenue than we were back then. In some cases, 60%, 61% less revenue. So we're only doing 49% of the revenue we did just a year ago. Um, so much leaner teams. Um, we're still, you know, on the home office, our COO and our CFO aren't even in the organization. And so we're running a much leaner organization. Um, and um, so that's from an operational perspective. Yeah. At the property level, our salaried people are covering shifts just to keep uh, alive. Um, the interesting thing is we found that a lot of our team members, room attendants and housemen and those types of positions, when um, people were getting that $600 extra, you know, unemployment thing, even if we had work, they weren't willing, they didn't want to come back to work, you know, because they're collecting unemployment plus the $600 a week, they're making, they're doing pretty well um, for for themselves, right? Um, so that's, that happened quite a bit. How did Um, you guys deal with that then? Cause I know when you file for that, you have to click the boxes and say you you didn't refuse work for anything. And all that has been, and for, with the EED though, or with unemployment, um, you don't have to, during the COVID stuff, it doesn't matter. You don't have to look for work if if you're on unemployment right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, okay so <laughs> so how do we deal with that we beg like people to come in there, yeah, there are still some people who want to come in like in chicago we had team members who wanted to work who were only getting part-time work at one of our hotels would go work at one of the other hotels to, to fill out their their shift right. um but sometimes managers had to step in and clean rooms um right. where they may have been a supervisor before they're gonna have to actually you know jump in and clean rooms or do a, whatever whatever job that needs to be done. What I have found is that our team now, they're much tighter, much tighter. Anyone who's been first responders or in the military, um, you know that there's nothing like that time of um, turmoil, tragedy, high pressure um, to bring people really close, Yeah. right? When you're so on the other side of it. To drive you apart, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right, it really it really can, um, but when it drives you apart, that's either that's oftentimes a leadership. I think it's a leadership uh, issue. Like in in your personal life, there's all kinds of things that that, that it could be, <laughs> right? And I've been there uh, too. Right. So, but professionally, I think that comes down to uh, leadership, right? Because during times of crisis, the best communication is over communication, right? And we really turn into be, I, I, I found I had to really be a cheerleader, actively cheerleading, talking about the possi- possibilities, hear how things are going to be. Here's the reality, Here's it's, it's bad, it's really bad right now, but here's what we're doing to change things. We're yeah. gonna get through this and we're gonna be a better organization on the other side of it. And I promise you, I am gonna bust my ass 
Oops, sorry. I'm going to bust my tail. I've been trying to be good for you, Larry. <laughs> I've been I'm going to bust um, my hump for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you let people know, I'm going to bust my hump for you. I'm going to do everything I can to turn this thing around so that on the other side of this, you know, you've got great opportunities in front of you. And you can't just talk it. You've got to do it because yeah. the team members are watching. As a leader, they are watching me, right? And so if I'm just phoning in my performance, that's not going to instill any kind of trust. It's not going to instill any kind of confidence. But when they see me, you know, working, you know, more than normal or working smarter than normal, then I think it inspires them, too. So I, I'm convinced we're going to be a better organization on the other side of this. When do you think the other side is going to be? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it feels like um, the end is near. Um, it, it In some ways, it does. But, you know. What I've learned in the last year is that um, without getting crazy political, um, there are decisions, I think, that are being made that aren't the best for the country um, in some that municipalities. An understatement in my book, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's hard to say, but I would say left to our own devices, if yeah. roadblocks aren't put in front of us, I think there could be a recovery very quickly. You know. Um, so as in, in our industry, the hospitality industry, which is kind of a, uh, like you said, it was the worst hit industry. When you look at travel, mm -hmm. airlines, restaurants, hotels, worst hit industry in the country. Um, um, but people traveled. March was a very strong month, relatively speaking. February was pretty, was okay, relatively speaking. It seems like April is going to be strong. Not nearly what they were last year. Um, but it is trending, trending upwards. Um, if you look at what happened in Florida the last couple of weeks, crying out loud, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be speaking in an event there in July. I think it is in, in an event in Tampa and the Marriott and the booking manager said that they'd never had a room block sell out so fast. I'm expecting, I think 2000 or 2,500 people here. People are ready. That, They're ready yeah, to get back. There's a UFC event in Jacksonville, like the 24th or 26th of April, and they sold out a 15,000-seat arena in like three minutes, right? People want to travel again. They want to get out. They want to have community. We are built for community as humans. We have to have community. And this thing about isolating is really bad. And that's what was scary. I don't think enough people were talking about this. I called this, I think, the first week. I, I did a had done a podcast and I said one of the things we need to watch out is for suicide yeah. suicides here in the next because you know isolation is the worst thing uh, for people and we're forcing isolation that's nuts it is nuts so, and when I find that when that's brought up it's tamped down by people who feel like it's not a problem you know everyone's concerned with the things that are impacting them directly or not everyone but you know the overall pushback is it, it feels like that's something that people who disagree with any anyone disagreeing with the government policies just don't want to hear it like they don't want to talk about the suicides they don't want to talk about the depression they don't want to talk about any of that they want to talk about why we should lock down or why the mask or why this or why that let me ask you there's talk about um about the covid passport or the qrc code and all that sure. is that something 
Are you hearing that through the pike? Do you th- is that something that's coming up in the hotel industry? Where can you see that being implemented? Yeah, I can. I can see people pushing for it. In fact, um, uh, EOC came out and said that employers can now require, uh, as a um, uh, standard of employment, that people have vaccines. It's like that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. How do you explain that? I've got somebody who's highly experienced, who's not vaccinated, and I'm going to hire someone, have to hire somebody who's less experienced because they're vaccinated. That's a lawsuit waiting waiting to happen. I I tell you, in my company, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, And uh, obviously, I can't control federal guidelines and those types of things, but I am hearing about these types of passports and that kind of thing. And to me, that sounds very much like your papers. Yeah. I don't think that's that's not a good thing. That is not that that is the antithesis of freedom as far as uh, I'm I'm concerned. Um and I'm not I I don't think that COVID is a hoax. Um clearly there is something going on. I don't know what it is. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. Clearly there are some people getting ill, but I just look at the overall numbers. And deaths between 2019, 2020, 2018, 1920. Yeah. It's about flat. Right. It's about flat here in the US. So um, is it an overreaction? I don't know. It doesn't, it seems to me like it's an overreaction um, in, in, some, in some ways. I would say definitely um, at this point. I mean, at this point, enough already. Like that's how yeah. a lot of us here feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah feel that way the problem is though barb i think that we've gotten to the point in society where we can't even have conversations no anymore you know i was i was with a group of men last night and um you know very variety of political persuasions on the spectrum and uh, this one guy just started calling the former president you know all kinds of names it's like whoa 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 whether you agree with the person or not when you start calling names it tells me you have no argument you know, let's just talk about the facts here, because yeah. I just I had just received a text from somebody um, earlier in the day who had forwarded me a, a Facebook uh, or a social media post. I don't know what post it was on, but they had called the vice president um, some derogatory name, implying that she was, a, you know, call girl or something like that. There, there are no facts to that. There's no evidence of that. Did she have an affair with Willie Brown? And that's a pretty, that's widely known. I lived in San Francisco when Willie Brown was mayor. Okay. Um, that was widely known. There was no secret about that, but having an affair and calling somebody a prostitute are two different things. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we've just gotten to the point where it's so easy to call somebody a name instead of having a civil debate about anything. I don't care about, I'm all about, if you want to have a passionate debate, let's have a passionate debate. But the, the name calling and that kind of that's just ridiculous or trying to shut somebody down. That tells me you don't have the courage to think that you'd rather just pair it with somebody else's saying. Yeah, I hear you. It is it is really difficult. And I was curious how you how you felt about that. We're you and I are in two of the most extreme states, I think. There are out there. I mean, I'm out here in New York. You're in California. And for a little while, it felt like New York and California were competing to see who could be the most (laughs) crazy. Like now we have like 
both, you know, you got Newsom and Cuomo, like which one's going to get kicked out first? Are either of them going to get kicked out? Who knows? They should be, shouldn't they? It's, it's it like, seems a reality like, it. like the, like those two, the Newsom, it's like the East coast, West coast. There's so many, so many things that you can make such a great dramatic series about it just between Newsom and, and Cuomo out there. But it's like, you don't even know what to do anymore, whether to laugh or cry or scream or yell or ignore it or not ignore it. Because if you, if you think right. about it, it makes you crazy, but if you ignore it, it just gets worse. And like, <laughs> yeah. What do they say? Like something about, you know, life is crazier than fiction. And yeah. um, and it really is here. What gets me with these two leader, quote unquote leaders yeah. uh, that you just mentioned is the hypocrisy. Right. And that's something I think we can all all learn from. Um, we're all under the microscope nowadays when it comes to social media and whether it's a social media or not. People are always watching us. Right. Yes. And when you say, you know, do this. This is what you need to do. But I'm going to do this over here. And I'm supposedly the leader, the person in authority, the person you should be following. You totally lose credibility. Totally yeah. lose credibility. And if I can't believe you, you know, in, in the, I think it's in Proverbs, they say, you know, how can I trust you with the big things if I can't trust you with the small things? Yeah. Right. And so if you're lying to me about going to the French laundry, you know, what else are you lying to me about? Right. I know, it's absurd. And, and, yeah. Let me ask absurd you, have you first. seen, have you seen any example from whatever? I don't care, like the guy at the gas station or in political office or any, like anyone, someone you know, a friend. Have you seen any example of strong leadership that struck stuck out to you over this past year? Someone who stepped forward and really done something extraordinary to lead through these times? Yeah, you know, yeah. I've seen a lot of small business owners. Um, who have like restaurateurs, gym owners. Like I, I know a lot of business owners who fought to keep people employed, who fought to put food on their table, who went against um, illegal shutdowns, um, you know, government mandates. A mandate is not a law, right? right? And to be, <clears throat> to risk going to jail, they would remain open. And when that's their choice, you know, and I'm not going to judge you for that. I, if I'm somebody who believes I should be wearing two masks um, in my car when I'm driving, that's my choice. And if that's, or that's your choice, you do that if you want. Okay. Right. Don't go to the concert. Don't go to the gym. Right. But if that business owner chooses to be open, the people who are, people who want to go in there, that's their decision. The problem is we have taken away free will from people. Yeah. Right. Let and personal responsibility. That is part of the problem with our society right now. We have to let people fail. We have to let people make mistakes. Right. And um, there's plenty of people who talk about herd immunity. If you want to bring it back to the COVID thing. Right. We never let the country get to this herd immunity level. Right. That's why one of the reasons why it strung the whole thing out. But I've seen plenty of strong leaders who are willing to fight for what they believe to be right. Now, it might not believe, be what I believe to be right, but it's what they believed right. to be the right thing. As I said earlier, courage changes everything, right? When you see someone who acts in a courageous manner 
it stiffens everyone's spine. It makes them feel stronger. Like, wow, there's somebody to, you know, that I can emulate. Um, so I can think of a couple of gym owners and a couple of uh, restaurateurs in particular uh, who, who fought on. Um, but conversely, I saw a lot of people who were just, I don't want to say weak leaders, but they seem to have folded up their tent very easily, you know, yeah. and turned in, and turned into a victim, yes. you know, um, and that, that broke my heart because it, it again, it just impacts everyone uh, around them. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So look, now, in addition to the hotel's and that business you're doing yeah. coaching you're doing mentoring yeah. and and you're still speaking at events which is awesome it's nice to see events coming back let's talk yeah. a little bit about the the power of getting into masterminds and some of the things that you offer if someone's listening wants to learn from you hey we've been flashing your website across but i really want to give people okay, a chance thanks. to connect with you and because you put a lot of content out there you have a lot of things that you offer to help kind of guide and mentor people yeah. whether it's on social or whether they work with you. So where can they find you? So I'm on, I'm on all the social media, most of the social media platforms. Uh, generally it's just at Larry Broughton, like Twitter, the big ones, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, those types of things at Larry Broughton. Um, so my personal website is the Larry or Larry either one of those. Um, but I, um, yeah, I do a lot of coaching and mentoring for entrepreneurs, leaders, and high achievers, because I believe that it's the entrepreneur class that is going to shift the trajectory of this country. I believe there's a huge leadership gap in every segment of our society, religion, politics, academia, business, you know, all of them. And, um, and I think that entrepreneurs are uniquely built to step into that leadership gap because they're the ones who have had to learn to do more with less. They're always fighting to do things better, um, to be better, um, to bring things to market faster. Our government leaders ought to learn something from these entrepreneurs. And also I talk about this in a chapter in my victory book called Freedom Road, that more people like billions around the world People have been lifted out of poverty through entrepreneurship and capitalism than any other social program out there. And so I'm a true believer in building more entrepreneurs. And so I've been in the entrepreneur space for 40 years. Um, and um, with the exception of my time in the military, I've owned and operated businesses or been selling candy at school for more than I bought it for, that type yeah, of yeah. thing. <laughs> you know, I was one of those nerds, right? Um and so, and I'm just a student of business. And so I'm really good. I know that God has gifted me with just being an aggregator of ideas. I'm a student of business. And so I coach and mentor people. And the power of masterminds, I'm just a big believer that you should be in a group, like all the time. You should be meeting on a regular basis with people that are, you're in a group and their agenda is to help you, you know, not for you to extract ideas from the group. Right. But if you go there to help other people and everybody else is trying to help you and everybody else, great things happen. You just share best practices, right? Um, so there's that I'm doing. And then I've got a, uh, a program, well, two different programs. Um, one is called uh, the Victory Masterclass, where I go through my book over a 12-week period. And I share dozens of you know, tips and tools and things to help people launch their business and transform their life and increase their impact in the world. And I also have another program called Hire My VA, 
because this is kind of the perfect time for people to be hiring virtual assistants to help them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I've, I've got that program as well. But I'm just, I get really turned on just helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and high achievers reach their fullest potential. Um, yeah. As, as and I said, it's, it's the entrepreneur now. class that's going to. I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, sorry. would you say that's still possible now to somebody who says that's not possible now? Everything's shut down. There's no way to start a business. You're crazy to start a business. You know, some of the best, most well-known global brands were starting during depressions and downturns. Procter and Gamble. I mean, it's a quick internet search. Yeah. Um, this this is the time to start launching businesses or grow businesses or pivot your business. Right. It's one of the things I learned Like when, when we come out of this and when many hotel companies come out of this, they're going to come back stronger because we've learned how to do more with less. And if you look, a lot of the businesses that are that are growing now, like it or not, there are, there's a lot of debate on how people did things poorly, how they did them wrong about laying people off without notice and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking about just operationally. We've learned that a lot of the businesses are making a lot of money with lower uh, expenses right now. And ultimately, that's a good thing, uh, believe it or not, because that leads to more productivity and lessons learned. And instead of being a victim, hey, let's learn from it. Let's launch our own business. Right. Yeah. Pretty cool. Larry, thank you so much for coming back again for Encore, (laughs) joining us here on this cool platform. I really appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate your service. I appreciate the message you put out in the world. And I love that you stay connected with us and you're always willing. You're always there. You're one of our biggest supporters and we, we love you for it, Larry. Thank you so much. Well, I love you guys too. Thank you so much for what you're doing. You know, go get them. Thanks guys. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up another episode of the American Sippets Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Hope you got some value out of this episode. Uh, Larry always brings a lot of wisdom and insight and his story from how he served in special forces to where he is, is today and everything he, he's experienced over the last year is quite impressive and definitely a lot of lessons to be learned there. If you want to learn more about Larry Broughton, make sure you head on over to americansippets.com forward slash newsletter. Check out the featured article and show notes on this episode. Um, you can re-listen to the podcast, watch the video interview, and we also throw in some links there that you can use to follow Larry on social. Uh, again, if you got any value out of this episode, please share this podcast with a friend. Let people know what we're doing here. Uh, share this episode on social media, on Facebook. Make sure you follow us on social, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, at American Snippets. And most importantly, if you haven't done so yet, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. iTunes reviews are really important in helping us grow our audience, get higher up there in the podcast rankings, and get these stories out there in front of more people because you know, we're trying to make an impact. We're trying to make a difference. And that's what our mission here is at American Snippets. Uh, and lastly, we have our great American Syndicate. This is our coalition of freedom-loving, patriotic Americans, just like you, who believe in the core values our country was founded upon, who believe in personal responsibility and the American dream. And together, we're making a difference because we're giving back to the military, our veterans, Um, at-risk youth, police, first responders, so on and so forth. And we would love to see you inside of our community. So go to greatamericansyndicate.com to learn more. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you next time. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are. (laughs) 